Hello, welcome to a book shambles extra. Jesse Nelson, who is the US screenwriter behind films like I Am Sam and Coroner Coroner, uh, is in town at the moment very briefly for the opening of the musical Waitress, for which she wrote the book based on Adrian Shelley's film. So while she was here, we caught up with her for a chat about that experience and some of her favourite books and, you know, all the things we usually chat about on this show. Here is Robin and Jesse. Hello, welcome to a Book Shambles Extra and today we are with uh, writer, producer, director and possibly actor which is only based on Wikipedia so it's a very, I'm going to find this out, uh, <laughs> Jesse Nelson who is currently in London, this is the day before uh, the opening of uh, her uh, musical uh, Waitress which is based on, uh, well, we'll go into what it's based on a little bit later yeah. on because it's someone who, who fascinated me, uh, who's the person behind it. Uh, so we'll, we'll start off straight away, which is your work. Well, actually, no, let's start straight away. So I Married an Axe Murder. <laughs> How come, so I, I used to love that film. I remember because it's got all that stuff about beat poetry and all of that yeah, kind of yeah. spoofing. So how did that appears to be your only acting role? No, 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 no. I, I was not... a theater actress for years in New York oh. in my twenties. Yeah, and then got cast in. So I married an axe murderer, um, which was the wackiest production ever. But it kind of became a cult classic, I think. Well, that's because it's literally. It seems to be. It's, it's one year before your uh, feature debut, Green Karina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't bear an actor's life, to be honest. I couldn't. Um, you know, spending all day preparing for an audition, going to an audition, waiting to hear if I got the audition, all of that. I, I just so wanted a more creative day-to-day -day life. So initially I started writing and acting, and then the writing kind of took over, and that led to the directing. So it, it was never a choice. It was like where the river led me. What's the difference between the frustrations then? Because I, I, I equally, I could never, not only could I not be an actor due to an enormous lack of talent, but also <laughs> that bit of giving so much control over to other people yeah. uh, seems to be, but then the, the control of being able to create a work. Now, am I right saying that all your work has been, you haven't written a novel? No, no. So, I don't have it yet. So all of it has to also be handed over. Yeah. And to both the actors, sometimes the director, if it's not you. Yeah. What What is the change in the kind of the, the possible antagonisms there? Yeah, I've been lucky with a lot of my writing to to have worked with really wonderful directors who have added to it or you know, certainly on Waitress with Diane Paulus, you know, her contribution to the script was huge. Her her notes, her input, her, you know, her nudging me in certain directions or encouraging me if I have a thought. So um, I haven't felt that same feeling of uh, frustration or powerlessness that I felt as an actor, as a writer. And there is a great Dorothy Parker quote, writers are the women of Hollywood. And um, I, I did at times feel that in in, um, in my experiences in Hollywood, which is why I, I taught myself how to direct and kind of moved in that direction. But I haven't felt that in the theatre. With a lot of your films, it seems, if not pretty much all of them, it's the interest in the politics and psychology of family, whether it's Karina Karina, whether it's I Am Sam, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's uh, Stepmom, this is, where does that fascination, do you remember when that when you first realised th this is where your life of the mind thrives? It's interesting. You know, now looking back, I would say um, I'm very drawn to the disenfranchised and to people creating 
their own families, the family you choose separate from the family that you're um, born into. And, I, and it's probably because my mother died when I was a young girl. And uh, in terms of Karina Karina, I was raised by our black housekeeper for a good portion of my life and transferred all those maternal feelings onto her. And she was a remarkable influence. And then I, uh, later on, my dad remarried. So I had a stepmom. So I think stepmom came out of that. And uh, when I gave birth to my daughter, she had colic. And I thought, you know, why can't I comfort her? You know, dumber women than I have been able to pull this off. And um, I Am Sam came out of that feeling of what if someone only knew how to love their child and didn't have, you know, all this other intellectual uh, toolbox to call on. So I think everything came, you know, from some aspect of my life. But um, but I am fascinated by the families we choose or the, or the ones we create separate from our birth families. So it sounds like in terms of your creativity, it's in, it has an importance in you also learning to understand yourself. I mean, do you find that, that, that sometimes you finish a piece of work and maybe it's not even immediate, but a couple of years later you might return to it and yeah. you go, oh, oh, now I see why I've... Yeah, I mean, often you don't even realise you're working in a theme until... Or, or that themes are repeating themselves. I remember... Um, by like the sixth movie I wrote, my husband saying to me one day, um, sweetie, did you realize there's a, a maid in every single thing that you write? And I had absolutely no idea. But um, obviously she was such an important person in my life. And even now when Roma came out, I, I was so thrilled that someone would, would shine a, a light on on those people in our lives. So um, yeah, in most of it's unconscious. You don't even know you're doing it. And it's only when you look back that you... Even waitress, you know, I um, I was a waitress for 10 years. So the idea of getting to uh, write about waitresses and, and look at what that life is, you know, really resonated for me. And again, that has a certain, you know, in terms of the, 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 the turmoil, of the family turmoil in that. Um, I wondered, when did you first become aware, for, for those listening who don't, don't know about, about waitresses, a very successful um, independent movie by uh, Adrienne Shelley, who started as a, uh, an actor uh, who I first became aware of in brilliant Hal Hartley films, Unbelievable exactly. Truth and Simple Men, and then became uh, a, a director. And uh, tragically, Waitress is her, her last work, and if, I won't go into it here, but if listeners do look up something about her career and her life. When were you drawn to Waitress? Did you, were you aware of it from the moment the film came out? Yeah, I had two interesting experiences with it. One was my daughter discovered it when she was 12, and uh, she would watch it at every slumber party we had at the house. She loved sharing it with her friends. So I don't know if you have this with your own kids, but you end up watching a movie like 25 times because literally, you know, the kids love to return to something. And I would watch these young girls watching it and I would think, what are they responding to so much in this film? And then I would watch my husband watching it and he would be equally drawn into it. So I had a real relationship with the movie prior to uh, getting asked to write the, the musical. And then when Adrian uh, died her husband began to seek out women directors in Hollywood to continue her work, the scripts that hadn't been made. So he knocked on my door one day with one of her scripts. And so I had begun, uh, you know, a small relationship with their family and with her material. So when, when I heard that they were looking for a writer for Waitress, you know, I already had a real love of the film and a 
a real uh, love of the characters she created. So it, you know, it was easy for me to then begin to think of how would I turn that into a musical. What is it? I mean, that what are the difficulties in taking? You know, in in in, in cinema where you you have well, obviously with budgetary mm-hmm. restraints, but. You have you can go out, you can move around, you can do all these. Suddenly, you're you're you have the stage, you have the proscenium march, whatever it may be. And um, what did you find difficult, and how much does it actually make it even more exciting to go? How do I, this scene must remain that we can change into yes. one line of dialogue? Yeah, it'll, a couple things on that. One, I felt like I wasn't the initial architect on this piece. Adrian was. So I was coming in to do a renovation, um, which which was a whole other role to be in. So it was a lot what you're talking about, like, oh, I can, you know, take these two scenes and combine it into one scene. And if I knock out this wall and open up this whole section that she's just, you know, kind of nodding to in her screenplay, that might be a good place to go with this character. But I think the initial first challenge for me was I had gotten so used to the tools of film, which are the close up the cut to, you know, so much of film is the images you juxtapose against each other when you edit, you know, going from the quiet of one scene to, you know, pushing yourself into the next scene and suddenly to have none of those anymore or then to realize, oh, I did still have them. They're they're just in dressed up in a different way. You know, how you transition from one scene to another musically, how a song is the equivalent of a close-up, you know, how you're moving more deeply into the character when they start singing. So... As soon as I realized those things still existed, they're just in a slightly different language, then I began to get really excited about what I could do. And um, I had a really extraordinary collaboration with Sarah Bareilles, who wrote the music. So any idea I had for a song or for a musical transition, you know, she was so open to looking at it with me and often would come back with a version that was, you know, 10 times better than my initial suggestion had been. So um, that really became a really fluid part of it for me. And and again, was kind of like scoring a film, you know, I, I could use what I had learned in that area in this in this world. So how does that process work in terms of you writing the book? Mm-hmm. And then where does Sarah come in? At what point are you sat together working out even perhaps what becomes a song? How much yeah. of, and how much does that change once you actually start working face to face? You know, every day was different. You know, sometimes it would be the two in the morning email, what if, da 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 da. And uh, other times she and I would meet. This was my favorite part of working with Sarah. I would go, you know, what if we opened with her making a pie and trying to figure out what the ingredients would be and and she's a little blocked and and we realize something's gnawing at her and we come to discover what her story is and so she's kind of going what's inside this pie and sarah would go yeah yeah i don't i don't see it and i go all right all right and then the next morning i'd wake up and the song what's inside would be there and that maybe happened 10 times where um you know, I'd say, how about, and and then the next morning, like a genius version uh, would be there. And and what I loved about, what I came to love about Sarah was, you know, she had to really put it through her own filter and make it her own and and find her way into it in a very truthful way for herself. But she was so open, even if she would go, uh, I don't know, you know, five minutes later, she would be, you know, putting it through her 
her soul and and finding it my hands pluck the things i know that i'll need i take the sugar and butter from the pantry i add the flour to begin what i am hoping to start and then it's down with the recipe and bake from the heart So in a song, what is, I'm, I'm fascinated, when Sarah goes away and then she says, I've come up with this, how much does then that possibly also change what you're doing in, in that scene? I mean, do you find that sometimes you go, my God, I've wasted, this is three pages of dialogue, which actually is told in the first verse of a song? Yeah, I mean, she and I tease each other a lot about this because sometimes I would write a scene and I would go, you know, you know, this is a good scene. I think this is a good, solid scene. The actors will play this well. And then I would give it to Sarah and it would come back, you know, as a brilliant song with some of the dialogue peppered into the to the lyrics. And the scene would come down to maybe two lines that would launch the song. And in musical theater, you have to um, make peace with that and actually love that that happens and not hold on tightly to what you've written, but to to be, you know, to it's actually a wonderful compliment when it uh, becomes part of a song but but yeah the the scenes are in service of the music mm. and and you kind of have to really support that because um, that's what distinguishes musical theater from a play it is such an intriguing thing the the potency that comes with 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 a song how much you can tell i remember a time where many years ago i'm um, doing a gig with uh tim minchin who went on to write Groundhog Day Matilda and uh um I sat frustrated because he turned, I, I did a two hour show and then I watched him do a nine minute beat poem and went, my two hours of yap, yap, yap was all told in that nine minutes. The, the potency of, 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 of the rhymes, the, you know, the, the, the impact of the rhythm of it. Yeah. So much could be done with I that. Know. It's so powerful. It's just such, it's more powerful than, than anything. It cuts through in such a deep way. And when you have someone as talented as Sarah who can you know, write music that people weep to, you know, you, but that, that ultimately was really exciting. And I'd had the same experience in the cutting room, you know, where I was editing, I am Sam and <clears throat> would have a beautiful scene between Sean Penn and Michelle Pfeiffer and go, Oh, the scene is really working. Yeah. Something's really coming across. And then two days later, I'd realize, you know, that one close up says, it says it all. I don't need all this dialogue. This close up is, is holding the whole scene. So, you, you know, it's a big part of, writing and directing is is learning what to let go of or, or how you can most economically say what you want to say well you you you're on a uh, a, an advisory body on sundance aren't you? Mm -hmm. so that, yeah, now, that fascinates me it's quite often when i watch uh, non-english language uh, cinema um i'm thinking of quite a lot of japanese stuff where there is a lot of of show not tell and yet yes. in a lot of English language cinema there still seems to be so much you know you, you get told exactly what's going on and then the song that's played over it is a song from an album which is then telling you that again so what advice I mean what, what are the ways in that you try and explain to people uh, how, you know, what you can do with, with, with cinema and the shortcuts that you can yeah. well not short, shortcuts makes it sound like it's cheap you know you know what I mean yeah. that bit where you go you can go straight to that and the audience will get the story yeah I think that's the hardest thing I found in film was that often the studio or your executives won't trust the audience, trust that the audience is smarter than they think it is. And so they want you to spell everything out for them. 
that's often a note that comes from uh, executives. And I always feel very strongly and try to teach my students and try to teach myself this, that the audience, they're with you. They're really listening. They're often 10 steps ahead of you. And, and you don't need to spell it out so much. The more you leave room for their imaginations, uh, the better. In fact, I just directed a, a musical in New York right before this. Um, it was called Alice by Heart, and it's it's set in uh, the tube stations in World War II. And um, we used as our props and set the, the things of war, parachutes, gas masks. They became Wonderland for this girl uh, in her imagination. And it was amazing for me to see what you could create with uh, a cot, a blanket, a parachute, you know, and, and the audience kind of letting their imagination go with that rather than having the set do all the heavy lifting for them. So I think it's all about trusting how intelligent people really are, even people that that aren't necessarily educated in that way, that, that um, audiences have an innate emotional intelligence. And I... I always wish studios understood that more. I'm always fat when you see certain pieces of theatre, so, you know, children's theatre sometimes, you see some where they've all got enormous, you know, the, it, it's the equivalent of one called theatrical CGI, these huge props. And then some you just see this kind of five puppeteers and you can see them on stage all the time. You can see the poles and you can see the strings, but you also can't and it doesn't matter. And in fact, exactly. that, that authenticity, I was thinking of something that was on the old Vic, which I don't know if it went to Broadway, which was the, the Lorax, the uh, musical adaptation of, yeah. of the Doctor Zeus tale. Yeah. And that was a wonderful, you know, you, you, could, you could see them all holding up the puppets and moving them around. That's part of wonder. Yeah. yeah it, it, Did it, you see Peter and the Starcatcher? No. That whole idea, Alex Timbers, the director of that, his whole idea was, what can I do with a rope? And so the rope became the door, the hole, the, you know, everything. It was just a rope. And, yeah, I think, well, even plays like Once, you know, it was really stripped down. And I, Harry Potter, I think, does that really successfully. It's, you know, the whole set is those stairs, those ladders, you know, rather than have this big thing, you know, I think that's part of what audiences are responding to. I've never got through to the, the ticket queue yet. It's about time <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do that one again. Yeah. Um, what do you, do you see a difference in, because this is opening, obviously, by the time this goes out, uh, it will probably be open for a couple of days, but the difference in... Broadway and London's West End. Do you feel, I mean, obviously, I know it's a different mm -hmm. experience because the play has opened once before. Yeah. It's not the first time, but generally in terms of what you expect, the how, how you expect the audience to receive things? A couple of things. It's, it's funny. I was warned that West End audiences are more reserved than Broadway audiences, and I found the opposite. Uh, in our show, in previews, the audiences have been so vocal and... Um, you know, standing ovations and raucous laughter, and I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting a more reserved thing, and I think maybe times are tough, and, and people maybe need an emotional release in a different kind of way right now, which the show does offer up. Um, so I haven't found that big a difference in that way. I am very moved by how beautifully trained and prepared the actors are here. Even in the auditions, if someone was auditioning for three parts or understudying several roles. They came in completely memorized. Every song, you know, sometimes 20 pages of dialogue and four songs, they would know them, you know, pat. And and even watching uh, the warm-up every night, our company, you know, legally you have to do a, a long warm-up every night, vocally and movement-wise. We don't have that in the States. So I think it bonds the company more quickly. And um, I, I just think there's certain things here. I don't know if this is answering your question exactly, but I think there's 
certain uh, traditions here that create a very different vibe in the theater. But I haven't found audiences reserved. That's what I was assuming they would be, and, and they're not. Uh, yeah, I don't think they generally are. Mm -mm. I think they, you, you've come out and, and you think, well, we get everything we can out of this. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the the version of Network at the National Theatre, which was... I I, I, that, that, that's Ed Broadway. Yes, yeah, I Yeah, that, that was a, a remark in terms of the reaction, the way it built, the, the, the tense nature of, of the audience as well. You could see it when all the muscles tightened. Yeah. The, um, do you have... Uh, is, is there an overarching, in, in, in your work a hope of what the audience take from it beyond being entertained for, for you know, 90 minutes, two hours, whatever it may be. It's interesting you use the word hope because um, I hope people have hope. Um, you know, obviously everybody takes something different from a, a piece, so I would never prescribe what I want people to take from this. But this story that Adrian created is, is really about someone reclaiming themselves and I think we've all had those moments in in our lives where you go how did I get so off track or or I'm a, a diminished version of myself and I want to reclaim my essential self again and this character Jenna that she created really struggles to do that and ultimately triumphs and it's a very simple story she's a baker a waitress making pies in a small town and but her journey is is really heroic and so you know, I, I do feel, particularly in America, you know, it's a very dark time in our culture right now, and, and there's a lot of hopelessness. And so if people come out, you know, with a little more hope or are loving, their heart opened just a little bit, I, I think that's a, a wonderful thing that theater or art, the arts can offer right now. Um, also, it's a real celebration of um, female friendship. And there's so many pieces... Uh, I see where women are bitchy to each other or or we enjoy watching women take each other down. And um, this is the opposite of that. These three women really support each other and, and are rooting for each other. And that's really important to me. And, and the men are also um, loving, wonderful characters. They're, they're, you know, it's even the, the supposed villain in the piece, he has his reasons. I love that Jean Renoir quote, everyone has their reasons, there are no villains we really work towards that, you know, that you kind of understand how disenfranchised her husband must feel and, and that all of his violent tendencies come from his own pain and, and internal struggle. So, you know, anyway, hope is, is a big, big thing for me. Um, just before we run out of time, the, uh, because it's book shambles as well, when you were growing up, who were, did you, did you find there were certain authors you were drawn to, the ones who gave you hope? Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, I was such an avid reader when I was a kid. Um, I don't know. There was a funny... There was a book I found when I was very young called Blueberries for Sal, and it was about this poor little girl who got lost in the woods, and this bear comes and, and finds her and helps her, you know, pick blueberries. And I remember thinking... Being so moved by this bear and, and, and how he reached out to this girl and... I think that is a resonant theme for me still, that, you know, when you least expected some creature, some human being, somebody uh, reaches out and lends you a hand and kind of helps you find your way. And it's never who the person you think it would be or, or when you want it to arrive. But, you know, if you just hang in on the path, they'll, they'll be there. And I think those were the stories that, that resonated for me as a young child. 
And now, who are the you know those authors where you go? When are they going to have another book? Who are the people that you have that anticipation? For? Recently, I've been reading all of Dave Edgar's books. Have you read them? I read the very first. Yeah, the heartbreaking I, I, yeah, books. And yeah, I, I know yeah. I should read the others. Oh, and I read The Circle as well. And then what is what? Yeah. Oh, I haven't read that. Oh, I can't recommend it enough. Um, so it, I've been really enjoying his stuff and the McSweeney collections of short stories. I love short stories. So um, that's been a bit, right now because I'm directing a musical and writing this musical. If I can get through a short story, it's like, yay! at least I read something, you know, because I don't have time to read a whole novel right now. Yeah, great short stories. Like you know, it's it's like a perfectly told joke, isn't it? It might not have a laugh yeah. in, but that that little we quite often on on this podcast talk about Raymond Carver and just that you know the way that it just manages to get so much uh, detail. Yeah. It's, only, it's only one minor thing. It probably involves some shoes in a wardrobe, you know, something exactly. like that. Or and a at baker the end, you go, "Whoa, that's good. yeah." The, the the punch from that. Yeah, it's funny. I think short stories kind of liberate you from plot. Uh, the writer. Um, who wrote Ordinary People, Alvin Sargent, once said to me, he said, I'm going to put on my gravestone, finally a plot. Um, but, you know, cause, but I think short stories liberate you from that and allow you just to look at a moment in life, like a, a cake that got ordered for a son that passed away. That's one of my favorite Raymond Carver stories. And, and just what that moment is like. You know, so that's why they're so beautiful. I think that's one of the most effective bits of adaptation in the Robert Altman film as well. Me too. I think that story really works. Absolutely. And Jack Lemmon as well. In, ah. um, thank we you very much. <laughs> uh, Waitress is uh, on in the West End now and is booking uh, up to, at the very least, October. Um, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. And yes... Waitress is playing on the West End at the moment at the Adelphi Theatre. We were lucky enough to go along last week and see the show and it's definitely worth you doing the same. And if you're listening to this episode kind of just as we released it, uh, Catherine McPhee is playing the lead at the moment, who you probably know from all sorts of films and TV shows and stuff. She's great in the lead. And uh, Jack McBrayer, Kenneth from 30 Rock, puts in a very manic kind of half Kenneth, half Rick Mayle performance as well. So go along and check that out. And don't forget as well to support the Cosmic Shambles Network and the Book Shambles podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge there or come along to any of our live shows. We've got coming up Universe of Music with Steve Pretty and Chris Lintot is coming up this week, the first uh performance of that at King's Place. Nine Lessons is on sale. Robin and Brian's Compendium of Reason is on sale and all sorts of other stuff. Check out CosmicShambles.com for all the details. We'll be back with another episode of Full Book Shambles on Thursday. We will see you then. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 